It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform in a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form of head of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. My sister Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. I would like to hear it from your lips, Fraulein. The hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult decision I ever faced. If you were her, if you were in that spot, what would you do and why? I invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and this morning we're going to consider the parable of the unforgiving servant. A parable, as we considered last week, is a fictitious saying picturing truth, or as one had put it in a memorable sort of way, a parable is an imaginary garden with real toads in them. Jesus was the master creator of story, and at no point is the vitality, the relevance, and the usefulness of Jesus' teaching so clear as in his parables. Just like the parable of the ears in Matthew 13 that we considered last week, our parable this morning relates to the kingdom of heaven, which is essentially God's redemptive rule over his people. This kingdom was launched with the coming of Jesus, but it's not fully complete, and it won't be until the day Christ returns. One of the evidences that the kingdom isn't fully complete is that it contains sin. We see all throughout Matthew 18 that the subject in this kingdom sin against each other. 
And so Jesus instructs his disciples how to behave towards their fellow sinners in this glorious but imperfect kingdom. After describing how we should handle sin against each other in verses 15 through 17, Jesus instructs his disciples how to behave towards fellow sinners in this glorious but imperfect kingdom. And, and after showing how they should respond to each other in verses 15 through 17, Peter asks Jesus a very natural follow-up question. Notice verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The rabbis thought and concluded that three times, three was the most times you needed to forgive somebody for a sin. So Peter doubles it and adds one. Seven? Seven, Lord? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Jesus' reply does away with all limits in calculations, suggesting that the duty on the offended is to forgive without any legal limits. Imagine Peter's facial expression when he heard that. Well, Jesus saw it, and perhaps after seeing it, realized the need to explain himself a bit with a parable which he does beginning in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I fully agree with one scholar who said that this is the most revealing and compelling of all of Jesus' parables. 
In it, we see the overwhelming debt of the servant, the amazing grace of the king, the unforgiving action of the servant, and the unmistakable warning of Jesus. First, we see the overwhelming debt of the servant. We aren't told here how the servant accrued this debt, but he owed the king 10,000 talents, which was a lot. A talent was the largest measurement of money, approximately 60 to 90 pounds. So if we just take the average of 75 pounds, 10,000 talents would be 750,000 pounds or 375 tons. Kids, how big of a piggy bank do you need to hold 375,000 tons? 375 tons. 70? I think it need to be bigger than that, Phoebe. And depending on whether or not it was gold, silver, or copper, 10,000 talents would have been about $12 billion. So to give it some perspective, the annual salary for Herod the Great reportedly was 900 talents. And based on the daily wage of that time, it would take the servant over 164,000 years to make enough money to pay back the king. And no reader could have conceived of such an amount. And Jesus' hearers would simply have thought of an impossibly large debt. It's sort of like a child saying, a bazillion gadzillions. Well, since the servant could not pay, the master ordered that he be sold, along with his family and everything that he had. And even though the price of a slave usually ranged from about 500 to 2,000 denarii, not nearly enough to cover the amount he owed, it would serve justice by the standards of the day. While realizing his fate, the servant dropped to his knees, asking for more time, promised to pay him back, not explained how, but he said, I'll do it, just wait. The servant's debt was overwhelming. We see next the amazing grace of the king. Note in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The word here translated pity is the same word often translated compassion. It's used of Jesus in Matthew 9.36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now the servant here certainly deserved no mercy, but in an incredible gesture of pardon, the king freely forgave him all of his debt. No repayment, plan, no repayment plan was instituted. He was willing to absorb the loss himself simply for the sake of showing mercy to a helpless servant. This is amazing. This is unearthly compassion. And in it, we see a picture of God who shows grace and mercy to undeserved sinners. 
This story is a wonderful illustration of the gospel. In the Bible, our rebellion against God, our sin, is pictured as debt. One sin is enough to condemn us, but we have broken God's laws a billion, gazillion times, more than we can even count. We all have an overwhelmingly large debt because of our sin. And just like the servant, we have no ability whatsoever to pay it back. There is nothing we can do to earn credit and favor with God. We're spiritually bankrupt. Well, the punishment the king proposed in this story was totally justifiable. It was right that the servant should have to pay with everything that he had. And so too with us. It is perfectly just that we should have to pay the penalty of our sin, which is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. But this incredible mercy in our story, this incredible mercy the king offered to the servant is offered to us. God will cancel our debt and the penalty for it. Our slate can be totally wiped clean. Not because our sin isn't serious. Oh, it is serious. Our debt, our sin is so serious, it costs the life of the only sinless person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And he died in the place of sinners as our substitute. And through this unspeakable act of mercy, God offers total forgiveness of sin. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We owed a debt we could not pay. And on the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. I wonder this morning, have you personally experienced this story of forgiveness? Have you come to see your sin, not not as mistakes or just bad decisions, but as debt that you could never pay back to God? Have you been pardoned through the mercy, grace, and forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus alone? If not, if that's not true of you, ask God to grant you the gift of repentance and faith. And and if there's something in any of this message that you have questions about or want to discuss further, please let someone know today. We'd be delighted to sit down and talk about any of this more so that you might come to know and understand this good news of salvation in Christ. Well, for all of us who have experienced the amazing grace of God's forgiveness, it can be very easy for us to get used to it, to take it for granted 
and sometimes even act as if we've forgotten it altogether. We, we've got to fight that. Right? We, we can't allow that to happen. We must continue to be affected by the glorious reality of God's forgiveness in Christ. And as the great 19th century preacher in England, Charles Spurgeon, who was so good with words, as he puts it, pardon is not a prize to be, to be run for, but a blessing received at the first step of the race. If you have believed in Jesus, your sin is all gone, all gone. All your sin has been erased from the records of the past, never to be mentioned against you forever. The moment a sinner looks to Christ, the burden of his sin rolls from off his shoulders, never to return. If Christ has washed you, and he has if you've believed in him, then you are clean every bit. And before the Lord, you stand delivered from every trace of guilt. Pardon is not a matter of hope, but a matter of fact. If Christ took your load, your load cannot remain on your back. If Christ paid your debts, then they do not stand in God's books against you. How can they? It stands to reason that if your substitute has taken your sin and put it away, your sin lays no more on you. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Get hold of that grand truth and hold it, though all the devils in hell roar at you. Grasp it as with a hand of steel. Grip it as for life. The amazing grace of the King. And understanding this is really the key to understanding the rest of the parable which we see next, the unforgiving action of the servant. Verse 28. But when the, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. One hundred denarii represented one hundred days of wages for a foot soldier or a common laborer, approximately $12,000 in modern times. It was a substantial debt, but what he, what he had owed the king was over 600,000 times greater. The contrast between the king's mercy and the servant's violent reaction could not be starker. The same person who had prostrated himself on the ground now begins to choke his debtor. The one who begged, Be patient, I will repay you, now demands immediate repayment. Even if he had decided to insist on repayment of what was owed him, he didn't have to throw the servant into prison. I mean, such punishment was harsh, unreasonable, and irrational. 
The slave's behavior is grotesque, MacArthur states. It reads like a caricature of the worst kind of villainy. It seems unreal and inhuman. Who could ever behave this way? That was exactly the point Jesus wanted to make. Well, the other servants who saw this in verse 31 went straight to the king, who was very understandably upset. We see then the unmistakable warning of Jesus. Verse 32, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Parables are often like scorpions. The sting is in the tail. And that is certainly the case here. This parable is more than just an encouragement to forgive, but a warning of what will happen if we don't. Jesus is clearly saying that we can't be forgiven if we won't forgive our brother or sister in Christ. A point he also made in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, he says, If you forgive others their trespasses, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now on the surface, it may appear that our forgiveness from God is somehow dependent upon our forgiving other people. In order to be forgiven, I must forgive. It can seem that way on the surface. But that is not the case. That is not the case at all. Our forgiveness of others does not earn any forgiveness with God. There is nothing we can do to gain credit with God. The point I I trust and I think is evident here in this parable, but also all throughout Scripture, we see that point made. What our forgiveness of others shows is that we have indeed been forgiven by God. See, see, God's mercy transforms us. So as Spurgeon said, to be forgiven is, as it were, the root. So to be forgiven by God is the root To forgive is the flower. Or as another has said, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. So, if we conclude that we cannot forgive someone, however big the sin may be, then it means we don't really understand our own sin and God's forgiveness of us. And if you don't understand your own sin and God's forgiveness, 
then you can't be a Christian. So, we're we're rightly sobered a little bit here. This is strong stuff. And we we must see then, in Jesus' words, that this issue of extending forgiveness to others is a really big deal. It's really serious. It is, in a sense, a matter of life and death. So, so if you're here this morning and you say, I just can't forgive that person. In fact, I don't even have a desire to do so. Then in light of what Jesus says, you need to seriously consider whether or not you've ever truly experienced God's forgiveness. Whether or not you're a Christian. Perhaps you know you should forgive someone but you're just choosing not to because of what Paul Tripp calls the dark benefits of unforgiveness. You like the power, of the, you, like the power you have of holding a person's sin against them. Not forgiving their sin makes you feel superior to them and you don't want to give up the high ground. And not forgiving them gives you a weapon to use against them when they sin against you again in the same way or other ways. Well, not extending forgiveness for, the, for these reasons is driven by an ugly, ugly, ugly selfishness. It has nothing to do with the desire to please God with the way we live with others. And it surely has nothing to do with what it means to love others in the midst of their struggle to live God's way in this broken world, it in no way reflects the gospel. And we should recognize that failing to forgive, for whatever reason, has really, really bad consequences. It incurs guilt with God, as our failure to forgive is sin against Him. It hurts relationships with other people who are affected by my failure to forgive someone else. Failing to forgive can lead to resentment or even bitterness, which destroys the soul. As one has said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. And our failure to forgive damages our witness to the lost because it contradicts God's message of forgiveness in the gospel. So the cost of failing to forgive is great, but the harvest of forgiveness is glorious and it's beautiful. Some of you, I suspect, know you should forgive someone who's confessed their sin, and you really want to. You desire to. You know you should, and you want to. You're just having a really hard time doing it. And considering how deeply you may have been sinned against, considering how deeply you may have been hurt, that's very understandable. 
But remember this. In this difficult process of working towards granting forgiveness to somebody who has confessed their sin against you, which may take some time, your greatest need, your greatest need is to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to minister to your soul. Above all, you must focus on God's forgiveness of your sin. Because only there will you find the power and motivation to forgive those who sinned against you. And in your journey of working towards granting forgiveness to those who ask for it, I would encourage you to be seeking godly counsel. It will be really helpful to talk about your specific situation and gain encouragement from others in your struggle towards forgiveness. As hard as it may be, obeying Jesus is always worth it. It's always worth it. May God grant you the grace, wisdom, and strength to get to the place where you're able to forgive. I probably don't need to inform you that this issue of forgiveness can be really, really complicated, right? It can be really, really challenging. And there's all sorts of things relating to forgiveness that, that Jesus does not address in this parable. Like what exactly forgiveness is and what exactly is it not? Do I need to forgive myself? I hear people telling me that. Do, do I need to do that? And what does that even mean? How do I know whether or not I should cover a sin against me in love or confront in love? Why can't I truly forgive somebody who's not confessed their sin to me and who's not expressed to me a desire to be forgiven? And when it's impossible for me to forgive because they've not repented, what then? What am I supposed to do then? Because there is so much that ties into a biblical understanding of forgiveness, we spend several weeks every few years in an adult Bible class talking in depth about these questions and more. So keep your eyes open for it when it comes around again sometime before too many more years. And then about 10 years ago, Pastor Miller preached a three-sermon series on forgiveness. And then he gave an evening follow-up talk that answered six very real yet difficult questions relating to forgiveness. So I just want you to know that whether you have questions or just desire to go a little bit deeper in your understanding of forgiveness, I think you would find his series to be really helpful. And if you just go to our sermon page and look for the series on forgiveness, I think you would find that to be beneficial as he'll cover and get into so much more than we will this morning. It is clear that we must extend forgiveness to those who sinned against us. But I think this parable can also apply to how we should relate to others in the normal, 
even mundane flow of everyday life. In verse 33, the king states that the servant should have shown mercy. Literally, it was a necessity for you to show mercy. And we know in this story, he's specifically talking about forgiveness. But I think that this principle of extending mercy to others goes beyond just offering forgiveness. This is a point of great conviction for me. I haven't yet struggled much with forgiving others. But extending mercy to others in my words, my attitudes, my thoughts, that for me is an ongoing struggle. But in light of Jesus' teaching here, we must seek to show mercy to others when they're different than us, when they fail to meet our expectations, when they offend us, irritate us, misunderstand, disappoint, when they ignore, criticize, dismiss, or are insensitive to us, when they disagree with us. We must respond with mercy that they very well may not deserve. Why? Because we've experienced mercy from God that we don't deserve. There was a man described by Spurgeon who once said, He spoke against me that which was false. But if he had known more of me, he might have said something far worse and have been nearer to the truth. When we humbly realize that nothing anyone can ever be or do to us is as bad as who we really are or what we have done to God, we will view others with mercy and will respond to them with grace. So, what would it look like for you to tangibly express mercy to your spouse, to your children? What would it look like for you to tangibly express mercy to your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your neighbors, your fellow church members. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ is our motivation to forgive others, it also is our motivation to relate to others with mercy and with grace. Well, we left the woman in Germany, as she faced the guard who tortured her, asking for her forgiveness. Would she forgive him? Recounting her thoughts in that moment, she says this, For I had to do it. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. 
Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help! I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corey Tenboom had personally experienced God's forgiveness of her sin. And because of that, she not only desired to forgive, but was able to forgive the guard who had so horribly sinned against her. We see in this parable from Jesus a clear picture of the limitless grace of God in forgiving the incalculable debt of our sin. And because we've experienced His undeserved forgiveness and mercy, not only are we able to extend it to others, we must. In the words of C.S. Lewis, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't fully grasp your forgiveness for us in Christ. It's indescribable. It's unfathomable. And Lord, we know we don't get it fully. But thank you for revealing to us what we do know. Thank you, Father, for granting us forgiveness in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the grace you've given us in Jesus. And for any that are here who have not yet experienced your forgiveness, Father, please open their eyes. Help them to see the glorious gift of freedom from sin, forgiveness of all their debt, and eternal life with you. Father, we ask as well as we grow in our understanding and appreciation of your forgiveness for us, Help it to overflow more and more in our relationships with one another. Father, may we be quick to extend forgiveness as we respond to how you've extended forgiveness to us. And Father, for any here who have been hurt deeply and have been sinned against deeply, Father, please comfort their heart encourage them with the gospel. May they find there a source of hope, a source of comfort.
And Father, may you continue to help them wherever they are in the process of responding to sin against them. Father, may you be at work and you may, may you continue to extend your grace and mercy to them so that how they respond will honor you and rightly reflect the gospel they claim to believe. Do all this in us, Father, for our good, but also for your glory. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.